This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Good morning, everyone. My turn to say good morning. I know. We'll just keep going. Good morning. I'm checking. Um, I'm Pastor Sean, one of the guys here on staff. Pastor Tim is away with his family just before his wife Grace starts her new semester at teaching. So um, they got a little getaway. So it's my privilege to share with you guys this morning. Uh, before we start, I did want to kind of follow up on what Pastor Tim shared last week as far as just the things asking you to join us in prayer for the student ministries and the families of this church. I think it's just a burden that's on our heart. We don't know what the Lord wants to do or how it will look, um, but we're just praying about different things in this season as it relates to everything from like nursery all the way up through student ministry, all the way up to UNLV. Things are like constantly fluid and changing. So we just need to hear from the Lord on that. But I think beside those making those decisions is the families right now. I mean, I know a lot of you guys are having to make some tough decisions that you didn't think you'd have to make back in January of this year uh, regarding education and just things going on around the house and what's safe, what's not safe. And my buddy's a teacher and he's going through stuff, um, what he's going to be teaching this semester. They keep changing things up. So um, it's so fluid right now. And so I just want to lift up teachers, educators, people working with children from this church body, from our church family. And I want to lift up um, the families as you guys are having to navigate these decisions that you have to make. All right, let's pray together. Father, I just, uh, I thank you, Lord, that you are in control, that you're sovereign, Lord, that you are the Lord in the midst of the storm. Jesus, you're in our boat. And help us to be reminded of that, Lord, even today, but also throughout the week and, and also for our church family as they make these decisions. Lord, we pray for the marriages of this church. We pray for the children of this church. We pray for the parenting and the, that relationship between parents and children of this church. Lord, we pray for grace. We pray for wisdom. Lord, we pray for your provision um, in this time, just for direction of whether the, there's a private school option or some kind of homeschool option or some kind of co-op. I know so much, so many things look modified, and I know things seem so unsettling for so many parents, Lord. So I just pray for just an extra measure of grace for these marriages and for these families, Lord. I also lift up the, the educators, the teachers, those working hands-on with the children, Lord, and, and the youth, Lord. I just pray, God, that you would bless them, that you would Fill them with your spirit and give them strength that, um, Lord, the fruit of your spirit would just come out of their lives. Lord, this world desperately needs you anytime, but especially in these times of uncertainty, it's this opportunity for your gospel to go forth and your light to shine through us. So I just pray for um, just a fresh filling of your spirit for your people, Lord, in this time, for, for Holy Spirit, for your comfort for them, for your help for them. And Lord, now as we enter into your word, I just pray, God, that you would... Um, He'd minister to us, Holy Spirit, by the, by the power of the word and, and speaking truth in a time of so much 
as I mentioned before, fluid stuff going on. Things changing every day, almost every hour for a lot of people, whether it's employment or all these things. Lord, you know, but Lord, we have the certainty of your word. We know that it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that it's trustworthy and we can put our confidence in it because you are the God that spoke these words for us today. We're here, all of us in this room, for such a time as this. It is not an accident that we are existing in this time. You have ordained it. You have allowed it. So Lord, would you strengthen us now to just be your people, to be your family, to give glory to you in this time. Speak to us now from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, so for those of you guys that don't know, if you're new here, um, Pastor Tim's been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and the title of that series has been The Forsaken Kingdom, and just the kind of the, the contrast between the kingdom of heaven displayed through the Gospel of Matthew and the kingdom on earth. And, you know, Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews says that, actually before I start, Zay, can you grab that? Does anyone need a Bible this morning? While I'm kind of doing my little intro, okay? So the writer of Hebrews says that, that Jesus is the expressed image of the Godhead. So if we want to know what God looks like, if we want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, what the important things are to God, we just need to look at Jesus. And obviously Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures moving and pointing forward to him. And then later on, for those of us in Christ, into that second coming, right? So as we're going through the Gospel of Matthew, it's really cool because last week, Pastor Tim finished Matthew chapter 23, which is a bunch of warnings, kind of comparing and looking at the, those that were supposed to be a light, those that were supposed to create a pathway of truth, a pathway to God among the people. And instead, they threw obstacles in the way. They made like an obstacle course, like if it's like American Ninja Warrior or something like that, where people had to try and go around all of these things to get to God. They made it difficult. They put heavy burdens on the people. And so that audience that Jesus is talking to is the multitudes. There's a bunch of people. When we talk about multitudes, Pastor Tim addressed it before when we first started Matthew, is that there's different groups. The multitudes are the mass. So within the mass, you have seekers. You have skeptics. You have people that have like one foot in and one foot out, okay? They'll, some will follow when things are good, and then kind of when things get confusing or they don't understand, they'll, they'll exit stage left, okay? Um, then you have the disciples or another group. Those are the followers. Those are the students. Those are the ones that are, that are drawing near to Jesus that get to see an extra glimpse of not only his teaching and hear that, but the, the way he's demonstrating that in action, okay? And then you have, obviously, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. Those are three different groups represented generally within the Gospel of Matthew. And so he just finished in Matthew chapter 23 these warnings to the multitudes. In Matthew 24, where Pastor Tim will go next week, it's going to be the warnings, but he's going to speak forward into the future dealing with end times. And he's going to speak specifically to not the multitudes now, but from here on out through the gospel of Matthew, he's going to begin to speak to his disciples exclusively, okay? And so this morning, I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're a multitude. I don't know if you're a disciple. 
I don't know if you're somewhere in between, but I believe that we're gathered together around the person of Jesus this morning. I believe that Jesus has something to say to you and I, and he wants to remind us of things and promises from his word that we can stand on in and be confident in times like these. Because like I said, everything's moving, right? Everything's so fluid, all these uncertainties, things changing hour by hour. But you know what's certain? Jesus displayed through his word. We can rest upon this. So that's, that's my heart, and that's what I want to share with you this morning. No matter where you're at, then in uncertain times, God desires to, for our certainty to be in him and who we are for the believer, who we are in him. So this morning's message is from Romans. Uh, we're going to go from chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 20. I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop. Um, I'm titling this message in everlasting confidence because I believe the Lord wants us to be confident in these times. But I want you to understand the backdrop. So this is written by the Apostle Paul. It's a letter. Apostle Paul was in, uh, one of the main church leaders of the, or the early church leaders. And he's writing to a church to encourage them, to instruct them, and to point them back to the gospel. Because what's happened in Rome is it's become a mixed group of, of believers. You have your Gentile group of believers, those who eat pork, dress differently, listen to different kinds of music, and uh, yeah, completely different diet. And then you have this side who, is, who are Jewish believers. They came out of Judaism and started following Jesus, but they still hold to a lot of the traditions. And so there was kind of some conflict going in between. And when we get off track, when they get off track, which we can see through the Bible, oftentimes the Apostle Paul or the writer of that letter will point people back to the gospel because that is the foundation of everything. Our misunderstanding of the gospel, our misunderstanding of what Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf oftentimes reflects itself in our actions towards others. So if this vertical relationship, if there's a misunderstanding going on here, then there's a misunderstanding going on here. And we don't want to misrepresent God in this time. There's a lot of misrepresentation and accusation and other things like that. But I think it's so applicable to our time and in all times. Um, so Paul brings him back to the gospel, back to the inclusive and exclusive nature of a relationship with God. Okay, what I mean by that when I say inclusive and exclusive, inclusive means including all you guys, you Gentile believers over here, you Jewish believers over here, inclusive. We, he's going to use a lot of plural pronouns, we, our, us, okay, speaking to believers. But he makes it exclusive over and over again in Christ. So the, so the determining factor of the us, we, our, is in Christ. But it doesn't matter, okay, these guys, these Gentile believers, their style of music, their dietary laws, the way they dress. Then you have these Jewish guys, the way they dress, the style of music, their dietary laws. Totally different. But that God could take these people and these people and bridge the gap through the gospel. And that's where we're at in chapter 4. So we're going to go... So this speaks of the relationship between us and God, but we're going to start by looking at the friend of God. He's been called the friend of God, Abraham, okay? Um, 
chapter 4, let's read from verse 20 up to 25, to the end of the chapter. It says, speaking of Abraham, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he, what God, had promised, God was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him, Abraham, for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Okay. So Abraham, we're going to go back, and Paul's going to give him a little bit of a history lesson, okay? Abraham was confident in God's promise that what God said he was going to do, that he would do. And just by simply believing in that, by being fully convinced in what God, would prom- what God promised and what God would do, it was accounted to Abraham as righteousness. Okay, now why is that important? Fully persuaded, speaking in times of confidence right now, or, or, or we need to be confident in these times. Fully persuaded, some translations might say fully know, and not just know head knowledge, but know by experience. Have you guys ever had anything that you know that you know? Like, I know that I, know, I don't need to see it. I know that I know that this is true. I know that I know this about God because I've experienced his faithfulness. I've experienced him working in times of my faithlessness. I've experienced comfort. I've experienced joy. I've experienced these things. And this, these are memorial stones on my journey and on my walk with God. So it's fully, to fully know, to be fully convinced, fully assured and confident. These are things that Abraham came to a place where he said, you know what? I know God's going to keep his word. Even if I don't understand it, even if I don't know what's going on, even if I don't know how this is all going to play out, I know God said it, and I've experienced enough of him in my limited understanding, in my finite mind, that he's going to do what he promised. And that's where Abraham was. And Paul's going to use that example of faith. And he says there, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Not only here, but back in verse 3. He believed God. So this, this idea of accounted to, let's, let's spend some time there. He accounted to, it may also say, depending on your translation, it may also say imputed or credited. Each of these terms are accounting terms. Okay, so you have this ledger, right? They're accounting terms, like here's a, here's a pluses, here's the minuses, Okay. So it was accounted, it went from something else, someone else put something into Abraham's account, all right? And I want to kind of paint a little bit of a picture or an illustration just to help us understand, because I think it's very important that believers, we understand, Paul wanted them to be confident, I want you to be confident in what you possess in Christ, who you are in Christ. And so this is a silly illustration, but maybe it'll help like stick it in your head and stick it in my mind and remind me. But here it is. Let's say you have an insurmountable debt 
that you could never pay. It is like bajillions, bajillions. Sorry, that's my kids say. But a lot of money, okay? A lot of money. You cannot pay your debt, okay? Do you know who the richest man in the world is right now? Oh, somebody said it, but I won't say it out loud because I don't want this to be about that guy. I want it to be about Jesus. But anyways, that guy's worth $193 billion. Dang, it's a lot. So $193 billion. So he says, you know what? I'm going to pay off your debt. How are you feeling right now? Stoked. That's mercy, right? Like you're like, oh man, I'm experiencing mercy. Like, thank you. I got, I'm zeroed out. I can, get a, I can get a fresh start. You know, I can start with a clean slate. I can start from zero. Now, how about if that guy says, you know what, to his secretary or, or his assistant, he says, give me one more debit card. He takes his debit card and he says, here, you can have my access to my account. Get whatever you need, whatever you want. You have access to it whenever you want. Here's, here's the card. You see, it's a lot different than have being zeroed out. And I think sometimes in our spiritual walk and in our challenges of faith and our trials, we kind of stop at the zeroed out. And all over the New Testament, Paul wants to remind the believer of who they are in Christ through the gospel. In Ephesians chapters 1-3, through I love this as an illustration because Paul essentially is pointing to their identity and riches in Christ. And it's as if he's opening the bank vault. He's opening the vault and he's saying, this is what you have by grace through faith. This is who you are. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, walk worthy. So before he says, this is what I want you to do. Do this, do this, do this. He says, I want you to know who you are. And don't we need to be reminded in these times who we really are? Who we are in Christ? What the riches of his grace are? So that we can be confident that we can stand? I need to. I need that. Maybe you're like, I'm good. But we're told in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, if I could kind of sum it up in this, that God is perfectly just. And there's this issue for you and I of sin. And his righteousness, our righteousness account, some, some people may measure it by our merit system, how good we are. It's always going to be a deficit. We don't have what it takes to bring that debt to be reconciled. And so that's why he had to send his son. One of the reasons why he sent his son. And so it's not this idea that sometimes can happen. And it happens, I think, in, in different, different faiths, but it can creep into Christianity. It'll call itself that where we have these scales. And we said, I've done some bad things. My past, I've touched some things. I've seen some things. But you know what? As long as I'm a good person or I do good things, then maybe if that scale goes like this and goes in this way, then, then maybe I'll be accepted. And we kind of can do that, fall into that trap. But the problem is, if I could do that, then guess how I would look at the people around me? Huh, let me look at your scales. How's your good outweighing your bad? And so we'd have a wrong measurement or a wrong standard of what is righteousness. This account credit was made by God based on His work. I'll say that again, based on His work and Abraham's active belief or faith that God would do what he promised. Same is true for us. This was accounted for us, if you're in Christ today, on the active belief and faith that what he did, the work that he did, 
was enough. Finito, finished. And that every good work that comes from it is to his glory. It's not from us. It's not to us. You know, Paul said, would say in 2 Corinthians that we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the power may be of God and not of us. And so that kind of silly illustration I used for mercy and grace, again, not just zeroing out, which is kind of a picture and illustration of mercy, but actually giving you the debit card to that seemingly endless account, that's grace. So massive debt, zeroed out, mercy, another's account, not your own, grace. This is a spirituality that can only happen by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his sacrifice, and his resurrection for your sin. And so this also just doesn't deal, that whole zeroed out and giving more in abundance, this also doesn't just deal with the penalty of sin. Remember how I was showing that scales thing? Oh, I've, I know I've done these bad things. I know I've done these things that are wrong. I know I've hurt people. So the cross doesn't just deal with this, and it's not only just the cross, the resurrection, which we're going to get to, it also deals with the power of sin in my life. Do you think the enemy wants to make you insecure about your faith? Do you think the flesh, your own flesh, wants to take credit for your status before God? Yeah, it's tricky, it's slippery. So we have to place our confidence in what he's done. And this, guys, is good news. A gospel according to Sean's ability is not good news. It isn't. A gospel according to his ability, that's good news. Because that's something I can share with you guys. That's something we can partake of and walk in together. And in verses 23 and 24, it says there, and I want you to notice, it says that this wasn't for Abraham's sake alone. When God does a work, it's not just a singular work. God wants to do that work and have it ripple effect into the lives of others. So this was for him personally. He, he definitely got that personal experience out of it, right? But then it was continuing on to this legacy of faith for this, those who believe. So your account credit of God placing and declaring his righteousness over your life and into your account, okay, was not for your sake alone but that others would benefit and that more would come and more would be added by the grace of God. You see, it's like this channel that he pours in and it goes out. So if this has been made right, and I'll get to that in a little bit, then this can be made right. Then we can forgive, we can love, we can do the things that the Lord has called us to by the power of his Spirit. This goes on also beyond personal preferences or convictions. Too often, when this isn't the focus, when the gospel isn't the focus, when his work being enough isn't the focus, then I, then I think the tendency for, for many, and I've been there, I'm including myself in that lump, is buffet-style Christianity. Oh, I like that. I'll take one of those and two of those, but I don't want that, that, or that. And that's not how it works, guys. Because you guess what? Someone else's buffet looks a little bit different. Their little plate, Right? And they might put different things. You're like, well, I don't like that. You shouldn't be eating that. That's not healthy for you in the spiritual context, right? So then we start to judge other people on their personal preferences and convictions, right? Rather than saying, I've received this by grace through faith, and now I see things differently. You can have your convictions. You can have your preferences. 
You can have your opinions, but those do not supersede the gospel. I just want to be abundantly clear. If you're a believer today, whatever affiliations or passions you have or preferences, those are important. I don't dismiss those, but they are not of supreme importance as our gospel is. And so in verse 25, it says this, and if you don't have it already, I would underline it, circle it. It's like the gospel in a nutshell, telling us about Jesus. Circle, underline, highlight. It says, who was delivered up because of our offenses, speaking of Jesus, and was raised because of our justification. I think in sometimes our gospel presentation, the way we talk to people or share with people, we have crosses everywhere, as we should. That's great. But we don't really have those tangible symbols, do we, of like the resurrection? It's like, would you have a rock hanging from your neck? Or like, I don't know, but we have crosses all over, right? But, but those are the, a two-sided coin. Without the resurrection, the cross is just another guy dying for, for the sake of for somebody else. But with the resurrection happening, that meant that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for our sin. He proclaimed victory over death, which means that's why our God is living. That's why we have the hope of heaven. That's why people we can know can go to heaven. That's why we want to share with people about heaven. But if it's only cross, and again, I'm not trying to diminish the cross. Please don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is that we also need to elevate or maybe step up talking about the resurrection as well. And, and, and even preaching that to ourselves about the resurrection. Because here Paul is saying they're both really important for us. That's not me saying it, it's Paul saying it. And inspired by the Spirit. So he says, he was, Jesus was delivered for our offenses. Okay? So he paid the price, sacrificing himself on the cross for the penalty due for sin, my sin and your sin. And I, need to, I think we need to stop and say that sin isn't just, when we talk about sin in this context, especially with the gospel, we're not just talking about moral failure. We've all done that, right? We're not just talking about the things that we've done that aren't really that great or that we're not proud of, okay? But we still need forgiveness for those. When we're talking about sin, it's talking about, too, the, the idea of it having dominion over us. In other, in other letters that Paul wrote, he said, you were dead, spiritually dead in your sins and trespasses. What can dead people do? Come on, man, you got to forgive your brother. The, it, it's impossible, right? So dead, speaking of our condition before Christ, we were spiritually dead, okay? We were spiritually blind. We were spiritually in bondage and enslaved. All of these things point to the impossibility of our works being able to deliver us from sin. So it held dominion over us. It also separated us from God. We could not be reconciled. We could have no peace with God. Because even if we did good things, well, wait, my good things, are, that doesn't fix the problem of the of dominion of sin over your life. It doesn't reconcile the account. And so we need forgiveness, absolutely. And that's why he went to the cross to pay for the penalty of our sin. All right, so then what? Jesus was raised because of our justification. 
Okay? He was raised because of our justification. Justification is a legal term. Earlier, we talked about accounting terms. Now let's talk about legal terms. You ready for this? Okay. I want you guys to walk away with this, with a, with a, a clear understanding, God willing, of justification, because it's important. If, in our relationship, justification affects our status and standing before God. Your status and standing before God. The just and ultimate judge declares the rightness of his son, his obedience, his sacrifice, and his resurrection to be sufficient to remove and break the chains of sin over our life. And that brings us not only rightness, but it brings us relationship. You ever think about some of the descriptions that God chose to use in the Bible? They're relational, right? Between father and child, or parents and child, between um, workers and obviously the ultimate of marriage. These are God things, you know? Marriage is God's idea. Parenting is God's idea. Families are God's idea. They're not man-created, and so it's that restoration of relationship. It's, it's connect, reconnecting because of what he's done. So justification, while, while the cross dealt with the offenses and the penalty of sin, justification deals with the power of sin. Because if we were slaves, if you and I were slaves, then we had no power to say no to sin. That doesn't mean we didn't have free will. But what I'm saying here is like, I'm always going to go back to my default mode, which my default mode is sin. Okay, because it rules over me. It's my king. It's over me, right? And so when we change that status, though, it deals with, justification deals with the sin, the power of sin in our lives and it being over us. Because sin also defined who we were and our ability, like I said, to draw near to him. But now we can get as close as we want to him. All right, and we're going to cover that in a little bit. So there's a need for a new identity. There's a need for a new start. Paul alludes to that in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, you're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. It's like he's, he wipes the slate clean and replaces it with something else. I think sometimes in our idea of justification, we think that he just wipes it clean. But then he replaces it with something else. Where we were under the power of this sin, he replaces it with the power of the Spirit. We're sealed with something else. He replaces it. So Jesus' resurrection was a declaration that Jesus' perfect obedience and sacrifice was sufficient for sin. I said that earlier, but I'm going to repeat it now. If he didn't come back from the dead, all of us, all of our faith would be in vain. But because he had victory over it, because he came back, it was sufficient for the Father what he went through for our sin. Justification by faith puts the due emphasis on your acceptance based on Christ's work and not yours. That's good news. Because no matter how hard I try, I still am jacked up. I'll be real with you. I still got like stuff going on up here. I still can be impatient. You know, other stuff going on. So um, it deals with that. Um, and then when we place our trust and dependence and faith in Christ, like I said, he wipes the, not only the sin, but the guilt and the shame. Because those are like the, 
the leftovers. Those are the things that fall behind or that stick to us, right? When we're walking on this journey, like they stick to our feet like sand. The guilt and the shame, he's dealt with all of that. Hey, turn, turn real quick. I know we're going to come back to Romans, but turn real quick to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and uh, we're going to read from verses 13 to 15. It's a similar idea Paul's talking about here, but to a different church. It says in verse 13, Colossians 2, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. How much? To what degree? How much? All. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So he took all of that accusation. Revelation 12 says that the accuser of the brethren stands perpetually before God and he just spits out accusation after accusation about God's people. And they did this, and they did this, and they did this, and he's the father of lies, and he accuses and accuses. And Jesus, when he declared on the cross, it is finished, it says that he wiped away the handwriting of requirements. We don't like that word, requirements. But he wiped it away. He cleaned it. He removed it, and I love it. It's so fine. It's, it's, the picture is beautiful because it says that these things, these requirements, they were actually contrary to us. They pushed against us. They opposed us. They were against us. And it says, and he has taken it out of the way. So Jesus removed it. I didn't remove it by my good works. Jesus removed those things out of the way, and he nailed it to the cross. That's final when you nail it to the cross. And then he goes on to say what? Disarming principalities, removing their power. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He's victorious. You see why confidence is important for us, especially in light of the gospel? Because this is a time, for such a time as this, that God wants us to be confident in who we are and what he's done for us. Who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. It's like everything is moving and we can just stand. Everything around us, there's chaos and we can just stand in that grace. We can stand in that confidence, stand in that assurance. You remember when uh, that, that last verse, verse 15 reminds me, do you remember what happened to David and Goliath, uh, what David did with Goliath's sword? There's not too many littles in here. Do you remember what he did? What did he do with Goliath's sword after he defeated Goliath? He cut his head off. Thank you, Chris. So little David took big Goliath's sword and took his head and he held it up. He made a public spectacle of Goliath. That's what you do to your enemy. That's what Jesus did to our enemy and his enemy. He made a public spectacle. Going back to Romans 4. Turn back there. <clears throat> I told you earlier about like that inclusive side of Paul's language. 
I want you to notice the hour. He makes, in verse, from verse 25, he, he who was delivered up because of our offenses. Whose offenses? Mine? Yours? Ours. Because of our. Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our. All right? But it's also inclusive in the gift, right? And was raised because of our justification. My justification? Our justification. This is our unity. Gentile believer, Jewish believer, whatever denomination believer, this is our unity. This is where we come together. This is the table that we sit at. Our offenses and our justification. Okay, so you see that inclusiveness, but then it, says, but then it alludes to that all of the work was exclusively done by Jesus. So while we had all of our offenses, what did Jesus do with those? He went to the cross for him. While we had all of those gifts, what did he do? On our, he rose from the dead. So wait, who did the work? He did. That's the good news. It doesn't, guys, it doesn't, I know some people are like, well, that's, that's kind of like extravagant. Yeah, grace is scandalous. Like it's extravagant. It's above and beyond. That's grace. If it's not above and beyond, then it's probably not grace. If you can manage to do it on your own and in your flesh, then it's probably not grace. It's not the Spirit. Okay? And I'm not talking about the quantity or the spread of the work, but I'm talking about the manner in which it's done. Is God glorified in it? Is the gospel heralded? Let's, let's, we're going to transition now to chapter 5, and we're just going to cover verses 1 and 2 this morning. And these cover the the results or the fruit of being justified. So he mentions justification, and now he's going to say justified as if, again, past tense. All right? It's been done. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So having been justified by faith, this is what we have. I used a picture that it pops in my head. I like sports. But it pops in my head like the punter. Punt, the punt goes up, and the, and the punt returner is about to receive it, and he does it for the fair catch, and he receives it. This is what you have. Since you've been justified, this is what you have what we have, right? Again, notice that language. We. What do we have? What do we possess? What are we catching? What are we receiving by being justified? He's going to mention two very important things, and it's not one without the other. He wants us to be confident of both, okay? Confidence number one, we, inclusive, us who are believers, us who are part of the family of God, who have repented and turned to Christ and placed our faith in him, you have, it's yours, receive it, peace with God. There is no amount of money, there is no amount of works, there's nothing that you could do and accomplish to get you peace with God. And it's exclusive, okay, it's unique, it's exclusive, because it says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the door, right? Narrow is the way. That's the door. It's through Jesus Christ. But through Jesus Christ, we can have peace with God. 
And in what context is there a need for peace to be made? War. In what context is there a need to be peace to be made? War. We were enemies. We were fighting against God. We were going the other way and he pursued us. Right? And he, because he sent his son to live, die, and resurrect for us, made peace with us. He made the bridge. So rather than this, he reconciled us to this. He made the peace. He became the bridge by which we can have peace with God. Now, this is a little bit different than the peace of God. Okay? Peter talks about the, the peace that surpasses all understanding. Some people, like in making decisions, they might say, uh, I don't have a peace or I have a peace. You've experienced the peace of God. But this is unique. This is peace with God. Relationship. Not just experience the peace of God, but peace with God. He made the only way and means in Christ to be at peace with him. And brother and sister, God wants to remind you and I this morning that we have peace with God through Jesus and Jesus alone. He wants you to be confident in that. He wants you to rest and stand in that. And what or who can take that away? Who can take away your peace with him? Is God going to take it away from you? He sent his son. Confidence number two. We, inclusive, believers in Christ, family in God, disciples, have received, it's yours, access. Access. Access by faith into this grace. Here's the exclusive part. This grace. Not some other grace, not some other gift, but this grace in Christ. We have access. I think many of us can, it's just, it's far enough because sometimes we condemn ourselves and we know what we've done, like I said before, where it's like, Lord, just being zeroed out my account, just you forgiving me of my sins, like that's, that's enough. Just, just us being at peace, that's good. Lord says, no, you know what? I want to take it a step farther. I want to give you access to my table. If you, if you were with us, um, Pastor Tim's been going through 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, there is a descendant of Saul, the son of Jonathan. His name is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, in short, is he was dropped as they're evacuating. He has a right claim to the throne. He's a threat to David, and he is physically disabled. And David summons him, and he made a promise to Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. And so he wanted to do, to do a kindness to the house of Saul because he made this promise to Jonathan that he'll look out for his family. And so Mephibosheth comes and he falls on the ground and is like, have mercy on me. Because usually if there's someone that's a threat to the throne, they usually execute him. So that way there's no present threat. And instead, what does David do? He says, get up. I'm going to give you a seat at my table. You're going to eat at the king's table the rest of your life. And I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you people to work on that land. And they're going to get the fruit from you. And you're going to profit from it. And what does Mephibosheth physically or in any manner have to offer the king? Nothing. It's that picture of grace. 
And it's so hard to receive, isn't it? It seems too extravagant. No, Lord, that's enough. I just need peace with you. That's good enough for me. But he's like, no, I want you to have access. I want you to have access to me. I love Hebrews for you. I think I feel like I share it almost every time I teach where it says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all ways, how, how many ways? Always tempted, yet without sin. And then he goes on to say, let us therefore run boldly to the throne of grace where we may, where, for, where we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. What do we get there? Do we get a finger wagging at us? Like, what are you doing? No, when we run to that throne of grace, we find mercy and grace to help. That's access. That's access. You know, I, 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 for you parents out there, I think I remember going from, wow, Lord, this changes my relationship when I, when I got married. Like, oh, man, this changes like, like how, how I view things with you and I. And then I had kids. I remember I had my, my, my oldest son, and it's like, like, I'm like, hey, guys, you guys are awesome. I was in a Bible college class teaching, and I said, you guys are awesome, but I don't think I'd give my son for you. You guys are great, but that's, that's like the real deal. I don't, I can't. And, and it, just, it just added so much weight. But I, I use that also because it's like, I don't say, well, you know what, son? If you get an A on your report card, then you'll continue to be my son. But if you get a B or below, then I'm going to trade you in and get a different son. But that's how we are with God sometimes. We kind of view it as this performance thing. Like the Bible does talk, and I won't get to the doctrine of adoption, but my family, my wife and I, we've adopted two kids. And I don't dare think like, I'm going to take you back to the orphanage if you, you know, if you don't act up and get it. It's like, you're my kid. I don't care how many times I have to spank you. No, I'm just but it's like, no. <laughs> But it's like, that's, that's relationship, guys. Peace with God and access are relationship terms. These, this, look at this. The fruit of our justification is that we get to have this tight relationship with God. Not this distant one. Not that, okay, I'm just going to be a servant. I'm not going to make eye contact because he's going to wag his finger at me. No, but he's like, come in. Come. Peace and access. This is relationship. And it's not the access, as I've mentioned already, it's not the access of a slave, because a slave doesn't get to go into the master's house. It's not the access of a freed slave who has some limited access, but it's the access of a child of God. We're called, and this is, it's, it's just like it's hard to wrap around, but we, I receive it by faith, co-heirs with Christ. So Jesus has this inheritance. He's like, I'm going to share my inheritance with you. Let's, let's share this inheritance together. What? Like, I'm just cool with that forgiveness, peace with you. But you want to give me all these access? You want to take me to the vault and show me who I am in you? It's not money, guys. It's not monetary. It's not like, it's just the goodness of God. And that's what he wants us to be confident in. Brother and sister, God wants to remind you and I this morning that we have access by faith into this grace. And who or what can take that away? Man, we need, to, we need to be telling people about it. We need to tell ourselves that. Look in the mirror and say, I have access today. Not on my work, based on my work, but on his work and me trusting in that being sufficient. So because we've been justified by faith, our confidence in our relationship and our standing before God, before him, ought to lead us to a place of the last thing he mentions there in verse 2. Rejoicing in hope. 
of the glory of God. Man, how crazy. We're just rejoicing in the hope of what lies ahead. We're rejoicing because this world is not our home. This isn't it. We know how the story ends. Pastor Tim will start showing us that Matthew 24. We know where it's going to go. We know who wins at the end. This isn't the final chapter. It may feel like the final chapter, but he's not done writing the story, and he has you and I here for such a time as this. He's not done. I used to think, man, Jesus, like, if I just pray the sinner's prayer, can you just teleport me to heaven? Because I don't want to have to, like, clean up my life and, like, live a boring life. I used to think that, for real. I used to say, if I give my life to Jesus, it's going to be super boring. I'm just going to have to follow a bunch of rules. This is how it's going to look, because that's what I thought, and that was my context. So just please, I'd rather just, if I say the sinner's prayer, you teleport me to heaven. Think about it. He could do that. But he still has us here, doesn't he? For a reason and a purpose. For a reason and a purpose. And you know what? <laughs> I, I, since I've come back to the Lord and tasted of his goodness and his faithfulness, I have so many memorial stones. Like, it is not boring. Can I just say that? Giving your life and serving your life to God. I mean, I think some, once you guys know, like we served on the mission field for the last 10 years. We were in Ethiopia and in Hungary, and all, that's how we crossed paths with Pastor Tim. And just like meeting my wife's there and being able to travel all these different countries, it's like, man, Lord, I thought it was going to be boring, but it was awesome. Like way better. It was a way better story than I would have written. Mine would have been a lot more boring. So this world is not our home. This world is not our confidence. Our circumstances and what's going on around us isn't where we put our trust. This is not the end of the story, church. So in this uncertain time and the uncertainties of this life here, God, does God want you to be confident? Yeah, because he left us this. He wants us to be confident in his promises. And that confidence of that relationship, that's a game changer. That confidence of that relationship with God will then spill over into the relationships with others. This is going to affect this. So if I have that confidence, and I'm not preaching myself to other people because it's not about my works, it's about what he's done for me and the finishing work that he did, then that's what I want to tell people about because that's the good news. And that's what people need, and that's our confidence. So we have forgiveness by faith in Christ, living is with us. And so I want you guys to be confident this week. Not as like, oh man, I gotta be confident, but just confident in who you are in Him. Maybe you're a multitude and you're like, you, you, you kind of have that, I have one foot in and one foot out. Do I wanna be a disciple or do I wanna just be a multitude? It's hard being in that back, going back and forth because you're not moving anywhere. Maybe you're like, okay, I'm just seeking, trying to figure out this faith thing, see what Christianity is all about. I heard, I've seen a lot of misrepresentations. There's a lot out there. There's a lot of saying like, it's all on you, kid. Figure it out. That's how I used to, that, that's my testimony. I used to think I prayed the sinner's prayer and God just said, it's all on you, kid. Figure it out. But God calls us into this relationship, giving us peace and access. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord, that, that these things lead us into rejoicing.
we don't rejoice over our good works. We don't rejoice over the things that we've done or do, Lord. We rejoice in the work that you've done on our behalf. We rejoice because we have relationship with you. And in every wedding, there seems to be joy, but especially in our wedding with you, there's great joy. We thank you, Lord, for making us what we couldn't be apart from you, for transforming and changing us into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, we are imperfect. We screw up a lot. We get distracted easily, Lord. But in spite of all those things, by your grace, we have breath in our lungs this morning. We have a beating heart that we don't control. We don't have an on-off switch for it, Lord. You know every beat of our heart. You know every breath in our lungs. You know when we'll breathe our last, when our heart will stop. And so, God, we, we don't want to live with those breaths and those heartbeats just being like everyone else in the world that lives in a manner that this is home and this is all there ever is. You've called us to something higher, to something greater, and that's a relationship with you. And I thank you, Lord, that you've provided the way to that. He didn't just say, this sounds really good, try it. You said, this sounds amazing to be reconciled with you, so I'm going to send my son. And oh, by the way, I'm going to give you abundantly. So we receive that by faith this morning. I pray, Lord, your people would walk in confidence that you would be the lifter of their heads this week. <sighs> Lord, we need you. Jesus, we recognize this morning that you're in our boat. There's a storm around us. There's waves around us. But Jesus, this morning, we want to proclaim and recognize that you're in our boat. You're with us. So just be with us the rest of this week. Commit these people to you. In Jesus' name.